Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. There have been moments in my life, usually during times of emotional upheaval, where without realizing it, I'll do a deep dive into a specific genre of music. And for the most part, it'll be the only thing I'll listen to for months. It is only after some time has passed that I maybe start to understand what my subconscious was doing. For example, the winter of 2004 was a pretty rough time for me. I was very lonely. My grandfather had just died, and the house I was living in caught on fire, which really freaked out my roommates, prompting them to spend the majority of their time at their girlfriends, as I essentially lived in this charred house by myself for the remaining months of our lease. For you regular listeners, this was also during the time that I had my existential crisis while taking a shower. So, I spent a lot of time going on eBay shopping sprees, mostly spending more money than I should on collectible McDonald's drinking glasses from the 80s, but also on records, specifically albums from jazz pianist Vince Guaraldi. I'd always had a casual interest in jazz, which was most likely initiated by my love of A Charlie Brown Christmas, for which Guaraldi did the music. So I went about exploring his catalog, which in turn led to a deeper immersion into jazz that lasted for many months. When I think back on that time, it seems like I was surrounding myself with things that gave me some sense of a different time. Maybe childhood, which is weird because I don't think I really liked being a kid. I'd always felt like an old man trapped in a child's body, but my childhood did consist of a living grandfather who had not yet succumbed to Alzheimer's, and a home uncharred. So what started off as an attempt to regain a sense of that time turned into a full-blown exploration of jazz. Makes sense, right? So when I go through these month-long excursions into specific genres, often is the case that I'll discover stuff that stays with me even after I've sort of moved on. Such was the case when I was going through my 60s girl group phase, during the months leading up to and after the birth of my third child. Probably needing to hear something that felt both familiar and uncomplicated during a time of uncertainty and exhaustion, I started with the Shirelles' Baby It's You, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. This led to me discovering the Supremes' Run Run Run, which in turn led to Martha and the Vandellas' No More Tear-Stained Makeup, and Rosie and the Originals, Angel Baby, and so forth and so forth. It was also during this time that I eventually happened upon Egyptian Shumba by the Tammies, and it just blew my mind. There was just so much about this song that I instantly loved. The persistent droning in the background, the urgent primitive drumming that comes in and out during sections of the song, but mostly it was the pure and wild abandonment in the vocal performance. I had never heard anything quite like this in regards to 60s girl groups. I was almost mad at myself for not having ever heard this song. Where had this song been? I became obsessive about it, playing the song for anyone who'd humor me. And as much as I loved Egyptian Shimba, I was scared to seek out anything else by the group for fear that it might not be as good, that it might sully my feelings towards my beloved Egyptian Shimba, like when a band you love puts out a record you don't. You feel almost betrayed. But after some time of resistance, I did eventually seek out their other songs, specifically the three singles they recorded for United Artists. And with that, 
I put on the music of the Tammies, and I listened. This is the story of those records. Hi, this is Gretchen Owens-Wagner. Back in the 60s, I was a member of the Tammies, the girl group that did background for Lou Christie, and he is the one who wrote our great song, Egyptian Shumba. Gretchen Owens, along with the other members of the Tammies, her sister Kathy, and friend Linda Jones, all grew up in Oil City, Pennsylvania. Oil City is closer to the northern part of the western side of Pennsylvania. And the town was very active, very uh, blue-collar town. You had uh, my dad worked for a company, started when he got out of the Army. He started as an accountant in a firm and worked his whole way up to the head. He started in the mailroom, actually. And I'm the oldest of nine, big old Irish Catholic family. That was not uncommon in those days. Now, nine was, but five or six was pretty common. Mm. Next in line to me is my sister, Kathy, who is the one who sang with me. Hi, this is Kathy, and I was a member of the group, the Tammies, uh, back in the 60s. And, and uh, well, that's who I am. <laughs> Growing up in a musical household, the Owen sisters began singing at an early age. Mother played piano, and there's a picture of me and my sister, Kathy, in matching probably nightgowns that our grandmother made us, uh, standing by the piano. And my mother sang show music to us. We knew every show song there was. I mean, the old Broadways, Oklahoma, and Sound of Music, King and I. Old, old, old songs. Dad was a bass singer and a drummer and our mother actually turned down a scholarship to Juilliard in opera to marry my dad so um I always said that makes me an alto so we sang all the time Gretchen and I would always harmonize and we were a very we, we had a very musical family and uh what I remember was my grandpa Lynch he uh used to say I'll give you a quarter if you harmonize for me you know and and uh, of course we we did, and we, we have been singing all our life, practically. We'd go to playgrounds when we were little, fifth and sixth grade, you know, fourth grade. We were singing Everly Brothers songs. No other lips could satisfy me. Baby, baby, don't deny me my hungry arms. Now, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, those days used to say, now, when you sing this look at each other so way back in fourth and fifth grade you know and we'd always win the playground uh, competition and so you know you weren't real popular people were like oh it's them again you know the owen sisters are here again for the owen sisters singing becomes an all-consuming passion 
constantly performing wherever they are. And much like their early days on the playgrounds, this was not always welcomed by the people around them, as was the case of one such incident at a local restaurant. That was in Oil City, and it's a restaurant called Famors. Still there. And um, and we were sitting in there singing. We used to sing everywhere. We'd sing on the bus when we'd go to New York. We'd sing, you know, we just sang. We'd stop. If we heard a song we liked on the radio, we'd stop and get out and dance and sing, you know. And um, so they just said, you're going to have to leave. We can't have this kind of behavior in here. So it was kind of, kind of uh, great sweet revenge years later when on their jukebox was our song, <laughs> Take Back Your Ring. Starting in high school, the Owens began performing with a local vocal group, singing frequently at dances held at the various lodges around Oil City. It's at one such performance that the sisters meet future bandmate Linda Jones. Gretchen and I... Uh entertained at the Moose Club. Uh, when they couldn't get somebody famous in, we always filled in, you know, and we were looking for a three-part harmony, and somehow Linda came our way and uh, met her at the dance and walked home and started naming songs to sing, and it blended very well. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not bragging, but we did blend very well. My husband was an English teacher, and she was one of his students. And she was more of a soprano, so we needed that third part. With Jones joining the fold, the three began performing under the name the Charnels, continuing to sing at the various dances held around their hometown. It is at one dance in which they were not performing that they meet an important figure who would play a vital role in their future as musical artists. We go to this dance, and they're bringing in this guy called Luigi and the Lions, which was a a name that Lou went by early on. He did background for a girl singer named Marcy Joe out of Pittsburgh. One of my favorites is her song, Ronnie Come Back. And he and his sister were background on it. So they came to town. So we were watching him sing. And of course, I'm sure we were the first ones there and the last to leave. But we were probably up front. And we were up there and he could hear us singing. And my sister had red hair. She was very petite and a dancer and um, had red hair. And so that kind of caught his attention. The disc jockeys that we were friends with uh, from WFRA... They uh, told Luigi, we call him Luigi, I told Luigi that we were uh, pretty good singers together and he considered listening to us after the, you know, the show was over and the dance was closed and we rode around and he had a black Cadillac convertible, I remember that, and we rode around and he'd name a song and he'd sing lead and we'd do background and he liked it. He said, man, you know, that's good. He said... He said, I'll call you uh, one of these times when I get a chance and try to get something going for you girls. Some time would pass before the group would again make contact with Luigi. Between that time, Luigi would adopt the stage name Lou Christie.
for his soaring falsetto vocal performances, Christie would eventually go on to have massive hits in the 60s, with songs such as Lightning Strikes and Two Faces Have I. But before garnering full-on 60s pop star status, Christie first begins gaining attention with his regional hit single, The Gypsy Cried, a song he co-penned with his writing partner, Twyla Herbert, and recorded in his garage in Pittsburgh. My sister came home one day and said, turn the TV on this Clark Race dance show, which was in Pittsburgh. She said, they have a guy singing, and I swear it's Luigi, which we still call him to this day. Uh, and she said, I think it's Luigi. And that was the song, um, The Gypsy Cried, his first single. I had some trouble with my baby. So I had my fortune raised. I had some trouble with my And so they showed a picture of a crystal ball and it faded away and there he was singing. Well, I have a knack for numbers. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but I remembered his phone number. We always joked, if you get discovered, you call us. And if we get discovered, we'll call you. So I said to my sister, if he's in Pittsburgh, he's got to be staying with his mom. So I called his house the next day and he said, I can't believe you called. I wrote a song for you girls, but I couldn't remember your last name. That is the, as simple as it began. And uh, I want to say within a week, we were down at his home learning these songs. After reconnecting with Christy, the group traveled to his home and began rehearsing songs that he and his co-writer penned specifically for them, as well as material for Christy on which they would perform background vocals. The first one was Take Back Your Ring, and um, he had a partner, writing partner named Twyla Herbert. She was also a redhead. Mm-hmm. She's quite a bit older than he was. Now, at that time, I'm guessing if she would have been in her late 40s, that would have seemed old to us. We learned quickly. I mean, he would give us the words on a paper. There was no sheet music. They knew what they were doing from their head, and we would just make a background up. And a lot of times he'd hear a certain, we always called them nonsense syllables. If you listen to the background of a lot of groups, they just sound like they're saying shanana or, you know, whatever. And that's kind of what happened with ours. With rehearsals in Pittsburgh going well, the group and Christy traveled to New York to meet with producer Jack Gold of United Artists Records. This meeting would ultimately lead to the label offering the group a recording contract. Well, I think because of our age, uh, our dad got us an attorney to look at things to make sure that everything was kosher. But it felt pretty good to know that, that somebody, because, you know, it's like the prophet in your own land. The people around town probably thought, oh, my gosh, it's them again. But the fact of knowing that someone liked what we were doing. To, to us, it was just second nature. To this day, that thrills me, you know? It, it just, I mean, United Artists was a big, you know, big thing, you know? It was amazing. I mean, it was like, it was like a miracle type of thing. You're like, how did we get here? With recording contracts signed, as well as a number of songs pinned and rehearsed, the group was ready to record. But before they could do that, they had to find a name. Not content with the original name chosen for them, 
the group would take on the name the Tammies, which was suggested to them from an outside source. Some guy in New York who was related to Sal Minio is the one who suggested we be called the Tammies because they wanted to call us the Twilus after the two writers, and that was really lame. With the prepared material ready to be recorded, the Tammies finally enter the recording studio in the summer of 1963. For the three young members, the enormity and uniqueness of being in a recording studio for the first time felt surreal. That was pretty awesome because they do actually really have studio musicians. I mean, it's not a laid down track. They come in and they're, they're, you know, whoever they are, they're hired to play. And they, to just be in a booth and see them out there and, you know, you do several takes or maybe you just do one or two. And they to to know that they're playing. It was very exciting. It was we were young, but it was very exciting. Yeah. We had pictures. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. No kidding. You know, of us when we first got there and first recorded. And I mean, we looked like little kids. You know. But the the sessions themselves, they might have been six to eight hours. Uh, you know, the, as I recall, I just remember we ate at a lot of Jewish delis for lunch and Chinese food for supper. That was always his favorite. And so, um, you know, they put us up. The company had you in a hotel and fed you. We never spent any money. First time we flew, I believe, and the couple t- a couple times we flew, a couple times we went by bus. Mm-hmm. And we didn't make people on the bus happy either. We were singing on the bus. So I think the recording part to me was the most fun. It was always stressful to perform. And with that, they made some records. It's a kind of a funny thing. Take back your ring. It's a kind of a funny thing. Take back your ring. Take back your ring. Take back your ring. Never mind the tears running down my Released in August of 63, the first song recorded for United Artists is the Christie and Herbert penned Take Back Your Ring. And really, what a great melody this song has. Especially this part. Isn't that good? Musically, it's a slow number with a prominent mix of piano and a heavily vibratoed organ that can really make any song sound great. But the true beauty of this song is the vocal performance of the Tammies. It's amazing to think that this was their first time in the studio because these teenagers sound like pros. Linda, who took the lead on this song, genuinely sounds heartbroken, like she can barely keep from crying while singing the words. What I remember about it is that um, Linda was the lead, and uh, we we would do the background right with her. But there'd be times we'd have to redo it, 
and there was one where it sounded like uh we called it my sister solo because it was it didn't have all three when we said ring uh it didn't translate so we remembered having to do such a simple thing multiple times and uh but i loved it it's hard you know you're dealing with the emotion when you're talking about a song like that just the, the sheer enormousness of a the big studio i mean they're bigger than you think this was large because you had the full orchestra in there it's all done live they just said just you know do what you do when you have something that you're passionate about the energy and the emotion is always present and that's true in church music country country music which is you know very close to gospel music is very raw because it's telling a story and he was writing specifically for us with some of those songs because of the harmonies I mean, I know that he had wished that years down the road, he didn't need to use other groups. We were part of who he was when he was beginning. Yeah, you know, I the, the memory I have of that is we uh, did con- did a concert up in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, we, uh, were, of course, were with the disc jockeys from WJET, it was, in, in there. And uh, we... we uh, on the way home, after we performed, we, we actually take back your ring. Went to number one in Erie, and uh, on the way home, we'd listen. You know, they, we'd turn it on the station, and they'd say, "Yeah, we just had a girl group in here, the Tammies, with number one song, Take Back Your Ring,' and and everything. It, it was just like it, it was like it wasn't real. You know what I mean? It was it was just so awesome. That's something. Yeah, I have to say, I think any artist would feel that way for the first time, you know? The girl group phase was just ending, and the uh, British invasion was beginning. In fact, the day our record was released, so was I Want to Hold Your Hand. So we, you know, God's design, perhaps, but the Beatlemania then began to replace the girl groups. I do think that that timing is why those songs were not um, more broadly known they were regional hits take back your ring was a huge regional hit it was kind of cute because they'd have battle of the songs on the local radio stations up toward erie where i said and their tendency was once a week they'd introduce new songs and they had the public vote on what they was their favorite and then it would become the new reigning champion well it was a dime to make a phone call from a payphone. my dad would get pockets full of dimes and go to phone booths and call the station and vote for take back your ring and you know so that it would win the battle of the singles that was the beginning and then oddly enough the day we got the record in our hand we drove to pittsburgh to get it my aunt died that day so here we were 16 17 years old flying high and then arrive home and somebody's standing on the porch saying oh your dad's sister just died so i remember them vividly the timing of things and that i want to hold your hand coming out the exact same day the b-side to take back your ring is the song part of growing up
sped up number with its surf beat and energetic vocal performances hints at things to come from the group. And though this song, in a way, does act as a bridge to their next and most well-known single, this should not diminish the greatness of this number. It's kind of a classic B-side gem. You know, the songs that often get ignored until the listener wears out the A-side and finally flips the record over to discover something just as magical. That's this song. It's an infectious number that one cannot help but dance to. And it's easy to imagine, through the energy of their performance, that even the Tammies could not contain themselves. Well, you can almost hear that. Uh, you, just, you can't stand still to certain things. That's my sister Kathy has that solo. Like I said, she was t- small, redheaded, loved to dance. I liked ballads. She liked James Brown, you know, big contrast. So she just really, I don't think we had to do too many takes of that. She could just rip it out there. Oh, I just remember watching her because the boom mic coming down just seemed so big in front of her face, you know, but she was a spitfire. I, 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 since I did the lead on that, I, I, I criticized that song with my voice because I don't like my voice on that song. I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm very critical of myself. I mean, I, I like the words. Lizzie is a great songwriter, Lou Christie. He's, he, he is a fantastic way of putting words together to tell a story in a song with words. He's just great, you know? The second single released by United Artists in November of 63 is the great anomaly of the girl group era. There really is nothing quite like Egyptian Shimba. What other girl group of this era would be willing to sound this fun, quirky, and dangerous all at the same time? There are just so many special aspects of this song. The pseudo-Middle Eastern instrumentation, that relentless drumbeat, the exuberant shrieking and howling. Sounds like the whole thing could run off the rails at any moment, which makes it all the more exciting. I just think of the amount of courage it must have taken for these young females to pull off such a committed performance of such wild abandonment. It really is just an amazing sounding song.
He gave us a piece of paper with words scribbled on it. Uh, it was like fan letter paper that he was writing people back on, and he grabbed the sheet and would write down. They were probably composing it while we were sitting there uh, on our trips to Pittsburgh for these practices mm -hmm. before we recorded. And because that's where a lot of the work is done. When you go into a studio, you pay studio time. So you want to make sure that when you go in, you use as little as possible mm -hmm. for expenses. But we would we would listen to them play something and we would add in that shimmy, shimmy, shy, I, me, CDs was just, I always called them nonsense syllables mm -hmm. because they didn't make any sense. But he was there, of course, for all of that, mm -hmm. all of the learning. I thought it was kind of crazy, you know. I, I really, it, it just, my husband, when we'd perform it, he would just leave the room <laughs> because it was like, ah, 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 you know. I mean, you're like, and yeah, he didn't. Why he he said he had a reputation to uphold. He was a teacher, and we're singing those very wild things. But um, you know, we we loved Lou, and we loved what he did, and. You know, and so we, anything he thought, if he was happy with it, we were happy with it. I remember when we recorded it, the studio musicians quit playing and just started laughing because no one could believe that we were doing those sounds and calling it music. You know, I don't think we had to do that one too many times. I think it, uh, the base of it laid down because it's got such a, a, a great beat, tremendous beat to it. So it was very easy to do. I mean, we were into it, so to speak, and um, there wasn't any coaching needed because we knew what we were doing and um, everybody seemed to be happy with it. So, But to find out years later how this song has become um, such a cult hit, it's very interesting to me that, that that's the, you know, I think it was just ahead of its time. I was, I, I was embarrassed to do the cawing we call it like the birds you know and the screaming in the back that that just isn't me but it was me i made myself be that person for that song but i like the song i do like the song i mean a lot of people like it i don't know why i was surprised it was such a contrast to the b-side of that you know which was more mellow the b-side of the egyptian shumba single is the track what's so sweet about sweet 16 with a transition into a slower more calming number the B-side acts as the proper come-down to the A-side's chaotic joy. With lyrics typical of this era, the song also includes a spoken word section, which was also fairly present in the slower pop songs of the time. But once again, what makes the song truly shine is the beautiful harmonies in the group's vocal performances. I like that song. Uh, Linda was a great talker in the song. I never expected that on my birthday 
My poor kids have had to endure it every one of them turned 16. I made them sit in the living room and I sang it to them. But um, the song itself was so apropos to that day and age. That's a very typical girl group song, but the emotion is in that for sure. And the harmonies were so tight, partly because of sibling and uh, Linda blended right into that, you know, that uh, you just can't. You don't always get that. I think there was a natural inclination to have that tight harmony. And that makes a difference where if you just do a pickup group, you know, I could say, hey, I'll get a soprano, a tenor, an alto, and a bass, and and uh, put a group together, and it'll be nice, but it won't be like you had somebody that's been singing together for many years. Mm-hmm. And then add relation there to it. And there is something definitely different about uh, blood harmony, for sure. During much of 64, the group would perform around Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York, often appearing with Christy. It is also during this time that the Tammies would participate in recording sessions for Christy's material, providing backing vocals on such gems as guitars and bongos, pot of gold, and in my opinion, the crown jewel of their collaborations, make summer last forever. Towards the end of 64, Christy would be drafted into the Army. His older sister Amy, who acted as the group's manager, would supervise the sessions that would yield the Tammy's next single. Released by United Artists' subsidiary label, Veep, the melodramatic Hold Back the Light of Dawn would be the last single released by the Tammy's before their breakup. that was written by other people and um what i remember most about that is performing it because it's breakup you know the arrangement was very very neat and the the but it, but i don't know whether it might have affected lou because first of all it wasn't his song and he was away so that could have been a been different you know 
B-side of Hold Back the Light of Dawn is the sweet mid-tempo number, Gypsy. Unlike the A-side, this track is a Christy Herbert composition and is one of the many examples of this songwriting team's ability to craft pop songs with memorable lyrics and melodies. sweet spot of this particular track is the lovely fade out on the group singing the line, I see see a lover. Though this was most likely not by design, Gypsy does feel like a proper send-off. Yeah, I remember that was my mother's favorite song that we did. Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty song. I think it's a very pretty song. I loved it. I loved the. Uh, I loved that song. I thought it was. It was written by Lou, and it probably was about you know. There was just this fascination with gypsies. He used to call us this three swinging gypsies. Mm. I would say that. Um, Gypsy. Now, I'm the high part on that, which is very odd. So we were able to play around with what worked best for everybody. So we went in and out. And we would double record it. Overdubbing, I think they called it. We actually did a couple things with him that were never recorded, that he'd come here and we would sit and he'd play a song in the living room that he'd written. And then we would just sit and do what we thought was the background in the back. And, you know, I remember them all. If I want to rub it in how smart I am now that I'm old, I'll send him lyrics from an old song he never released and see how he remembers. <laughs> when you have a relationship, um, it's different than just a job or a uh, show or something. That makes a big difference. But I'd say Gypsy is one of my favorites. I always like that. The Hold Back the Light of Dawn single is released in the early months of 1965. But months later, the Tammies would officially break up. My sister Kathy got married. She married a man who ended up then in Vietnam. He was a DJ. Mm-hmm. And that she wasn't going to travel then. I think shortly after um, she got married, she uh, found out she was pregnant. And so she wasn't going to travel with that. So, And Linda got married and... Uh, we just sort of, it just sort of ended. And like I said, Lou was, um, I don't even remember how long he was in the military, but when he got back, he was touring a lot with the Dick Clark Productions Mm -hmm. and we were not. And so, you know, road leaves on the road and he went one direction and we all went a different one. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many years it's been since I've seen Linda. My sister stays in touch with her. They were closer in age. You know, and and also I do believe that the British invasion had a lot to do with it because it was boom, boom, boom. That's all you heard. 
And then it was every group in the world um, was British. I don't regret it to this day. Okay, As much as I would love to be able to sing again and be on stage and entertain, you know, I... I, I made the best decision I ever made by, I was very young to make that decision. I was 18 and decided to marry uh, a disc jockey I married, and I had five beautiful children, and to this day I don't regret giving up the career, but but I, I miss, I really miss the singing a lot. I just thank God for all those memories that we we have, and it's a nice part. I mean, even if you can't have it back, you Linda and I, you know, we still laugh all the time about stuff we did in New York, you know. In the years following the group's breakup, Egyptian Shimba would begin its rise to cult status, especially, and in a way ironically, in Britain, during the Northern Soul Movement of the 1970s. Eventually, the song would be regarded by many as one of the great gems of the girl group era. In 2006, it landed on Pitchfork's list of the 200 best songs of the 1960s and was included in the girl group box set One Kiss Leads to Another which was nominated for two Grammys that year and in 2017 it came in at number 35 on Billboard's list of the 100 greatest girl group songs of all time in 2001 eminent Lou Christie expert Harry Young compiles a revelatory Lou Christie and the Tammies compilation Egyptian Shimba the Singles and Rare Recordings, 1962 through 1964. Containing the group's six songs released by United Artists, the compilation also includes solo material from Christie, with many of the tracks being those in which the Tammies provided backing vocals. Also present are two songs recorded during the same session that produced Hold Back the Light of Dawn and Gypsy, tracks Blue 16 and His Actions Speak Louder Than Words. It was Harry Young who was able to find those and get them on this record. They were worried they were lost when the towers went down in New York because all that stuff was stored. But he was able to get them, and I was thrilled because we had never heard it after we recorded it. And I would say my sister's favorite is Blue 16 of the stuff that Lou didn't write. Though their tenure as a group was brief, During that time, the Tammies were able to produce, with the help and guidance of their friend and mentor, Lou Christie, some pretty special material. And in the 50-plus years since their work was first released, the members of the group still look back on this time fondly. They're grandparents now, and I gotta say, Egyptian Shimba is a pretty great legacy to have to impress one's grandchildren with. Oh, they love it. My And my, yeah. Yeah, they they all have downloaded something on their iPhones or whatever you downloaded on. <laughs> They've downloaded Egyptian Shumba, and of course they all. I get calls all the time from people saying, "I just heard you in the grocery store on the radio," and it's kind of humorous because you know I'm going to be seventy five this year, so it isn't like um, 
it isn't like, you know, people look at you and say, what? <laughs> but it is kind of fun. It's fun. It's a fun legacy. I'm glad we did it. I think it gave great joy to a lot of people. I think that made Little Oil City have something exciting, brought a little more energy to all of us and to our town, our hometown. And um, so I, I feel good about it. It seems unreal at times that that we were in New York recording with somebody who is, you know, made all these number one hits. And, uh, you know, it just is amazing. And I like I like that he wrote them. He he likes a lot of the things we did his background with. And uh, that was uh, that was great fun. Part of me is very glad that it came at the time it did because you'd be different people. I may not have my children if I had gone on and, you know, if the British invasion hadn't hit, we may be different people. We'd be living in New York or, you know, and um, I like my life now a lot, but I wouldn't have traded that for the world. So, so I said, we wouldn't have met, met our spouses well we would have met them but we might not have married them because of songs like egyptian <laughs> he's sitting here listening to me so yeah 53 years we'll be married this year so that's a great blessing thanks for listening to in love and recollection a very special thanks to gretchen and kathy for speaking with me about their very special records. You can stream Egyptian Chumba on the various streaming platforms and hear the other singles on YouTube. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. Besides the interviews, much of the information from this episode came from the extensive website about the Tammies maintained by Lou Christie historian Harry Smith. And we'll put a link to his site up on our webpage. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.